welcome to machine learning. TensorFlow. So, um, analyze the credit card data on TensorFlow and uh, it's interesting because what uh, it showed is that uh, it was measuring it's a binary entropy uh, that was the compiled uh, optimizer was Adam and um, it showed that um, the um, defaults were largely occurring with in the age between 30 and 40 a lot of 30 year olds had been defaulting and uh, uh, I added a plot on their debt to payment ratios so um, it wasn't to their income but it was looking at their payment uh, ratios as it related to their balance limit and uh, uh, so what I did is I took the bill amount minus the payment and divided that by the limit and it gave me a ratio a debt ratio and what I found is most of the most of the card ranges were um, sitting around at five a ratio of five um, and what five represents would be the bill amount minus the payment divided by the limit balance. So that's what I wanted to see is what that ratio was. And most of it was around five, but then there was, uh, there was some that were above it. And I didn't count how many occurrences were above five, but the, that would be interesting to see if, that the one, if, the, if there was a correlation between individuals above a five and the per, and the predicted default. So, in that sense, uh, you could you could boil everything down to a ratio, and uh, then banks could consult individuals when their ratios got above a five, because that could indicate there's a high probability of default on the horizon. And so, rather than um, having to fight these individuals in the court or selling the debt off to a collector. Um, they might want to look at the probability of getting a payment back and, um, and then working to, with individuals to ensure that they pay off their debt. One of, that's one of the bad cycles of credit card is it's unsecured debt and that uh, there is a high degree of failure so the cards are issued out and they charge exorbitant uh, interest rates to cover offset the risk and there is a high uh, percentage of failure when the when the debt amounts get to a certain point because they're paying so much in interest and little, very little in principal. And, that, and for that reason, um, the minimum payment does not, will take almost perpetual amount of time to pay off the balance.
So I remember once I had a credit card debt and I was paying twice my minimum payment and it was hardly going down at all. And it was very concerning. Sometimes you don't realize what uh, uh, $10,000 in credit card debt means. But that you, if you had $10,000 in credit card debt, you should make $1,000 a month payments on it. And even at $1,000 a month payment, you'd be lucky to finish off the debt payments in one year. And for most people, $1,000 is a lot of money per month to expend on debt. But it's so easy to accumulate uh, debt. And, you know, one of the two great questions that you should ask yourself is, number one, do I really need this? Is this a need or a want? And number two, why am I not saving the money first to buy this item? So those who save have, and that's the universal principle. And borrowing on debt is always a bad idea because it uh, implies that you're not living within your means and you're buying things that uh, uh, are not going to return a value to you in the sense that it's not going to create a cash flow. So for that reason, uh, it becomes really expensive to finance that debt. And so if your income, you don't have the extra $1,000 a month to pay for the $10,000 in debt, then uh, you need to liquidate assets. And that means sell jewelry, sell computers, sell things that have value and salvage them to raise money. So that's always the rule with debt is sell assets to pay down debt. Because financing a large debt payment is not feasible over the long term. And for, for many reasons, the laws should place a, a time period in which debt can be repaid. And if that debt is not repaid in that time period, it should be forgiven. Because we don't want to become slaves to debt. And uh, a default is an indication that the weight of that debt is exceeding the individual's capability to repay it. And that might, those, those circumstances might be uh, behavioral. They might have chose not to repay the debt. Uh, they might have had a change in income. Their priorities are to pay for other things before paying down the debt. But debt should be painful. I've always said that uh, up to a certain point. At one time in my life, I believed I could manage debt by minimizing the payment. 
and then it wouldn't be as painful. But what I realized when I did it that way, behaviorally, yeah, it didn't, it wasn't as painful. I mean, I could have a low uh, payment, but the debt seemed to hang on there forever. And I really do not like that strategy. The better strategy is to maximize the, your pain and pay down that debt as fast as you can. And after I went through that experience, I, I told my wife, let's get rid of our credit cards. I cannot tolerate the pain they have brought on me. And so we got rid of them. And uh, we started saving. And we're paying down, uh, you know, our car payments. And sometime this, in 2021, we should have a, one of our cars paid off. And then we can use that money to pay on the other car and uh, pay that off in a couple of years. And then we would have two cars that we own. Cars are a heavy liability because, yes, they transport you from one location to another, but they don't appreciate in value, and over time, they represent a liability because they have a high maintenance. So you might have a transmission go out, an engine go out, seals that need to be replaced. And those costs uh, affect your cash stream. I was talking to a friend last night and he was telling me that on Social Security, his wife, uh, he and his wife combined would make about 40000 a year. And I said, well, you know, if you live 10 years, that'd be $400,000 of uh, income. But then you would have to pay taxes on that, so you actually live on less money than 40000 a year. And so you would have to be very careful about your expenses. But then as you get older, you have increased health problems, and, uh, and the cost of health care has gone up, so it's expensive. So the assets that you have... Uh, that you've earned money on in terms of fixed income to offset the Social Security have to be pretty large. So that would mean that you would probably want to work the maximum amount of time that you can. And uh, let's say that that's 40 years of work. If you can work 40 years, then uh, that would give you a larger amount of money uh, for the remaining 30 years of retirement. So if you're young, which my audience is very young, the strategy should be for you, um, now that you're entering into your 30s, you should have had 10 years of savings. If you don't have 10 years of savings, then change the behavior today and... Uh, and start saving. Every paycheck, save 10%. <clears throat> save 10% for 20 years. 
so from now, your age is probably about 30. The bulk of my listeners are about 30. So by the time you're 50, you have saved 20 years. And now you're within, uh, in some cases, 10 years from retirement, other cases, 17. Uh, with If you're going to take early Social Security or you're going to take late Social Security, uh, that's all a factor on, on when you can retire. Let's say it's 70 that you decide to retire. So you have another 20 years. You leave that money alone for the last 20 years and let uh, uh, compounding interest work for you. And, uh, and that's how, when you're uh, 70, you can retire. Because it's not really feasible to think that you can live cheap. There's no such thing as living cheap. The only way you could live cheap is if you were in the wilderness. That'd be far away from civilization. Uh, you're self-sufficient. You're off-grid. You you produce your own food. You produce your own energy. You you know you have a well. Then you may be able to live cheap, but you'll still have land taxes. So you're not totally uh, off the hook from civilization. And so. Uh, for that reason, um, you would still need to have money. And even though you may live very cheap today, living with your parents or living with a friend or a boy, girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, eventually you have to become self-sufficient. There is no free lunch in life. And so what I'm saying is that uh, you're going to need to save. And if you start saving today, um, then in the future, you will be amazed how fast your money accumulates. I remember once talking to an individual in the Air Force. We were, we were working together, and I told him, you know, he was telling me about retiring with one, one career and starting another. And, and uh, he was asking me what he should do with his money, and I said, well, put it save it. I said, I, you know, I'm not great at investing. I've thought about different schemes on how to invest, but I've never really made a lot of money investing. But I do know how to save. And, um, you know, so uh, save, your, save your money and, and accumulate wealth that way. And so uh, he, uh, he saved his money. And then one day I saw him at Walmart. He had got a second job after he retired. He got a second job and he was working at Walmart. And he was really excited. And I was like, wow, he's really excited to see me. So he came up to see me, talked to me. And he said, do you remember when you told me about saving? I did it. And I have been taking all my money I make at Walmart plus all the money I save you know uh, from my income I save that and I've got money saved there and I've I've been buying uh, Walmart stock and that's when Walmart stock first IPO'd so you can imagine how much that's worth today but he bought uh, 
Walmart stock. And he was really excited that he was able to get the Walmart stock at an di employee discount. And he was accumulating his wealth. So he's accumulating stock in the company he was working for. And he had a retirement and he was accumulating his wealth. And I don't know how many years he worked at Walmart. But it's the idea that you uh, save for the future because you can't know the future. That's the universal principle of investing. It's the Graham Dodd paradigm of investing is you cannot know the future, therefore you must predict the future. And predictions are always a probability. So based on the probability, the Agree to overfitting that you can run into, so you have to generalize, and then you have to make a prediction into the future of a trend. So make your predictions today, what you will be like in uh, 20 years. Use 20 years as the guide. So you could uh, invest in uh, indexes. Indexes are a smart move. They, over a 20-year period of time, they usually appreciate about 7%. That was one uh, number I saw that you know, said, you know, basically if, if you can't beat 7%, then just buy an index, and like an S&P index. You might be able to find some trust funds that are government subsidized. Uh, nuclear energy, for example, uh, is a good one where they pay regular dividends to entice investors. It's super safe. You know, those reactors don't go out of business, but they need capital, so they, they offer stock. Um, the one that's really interesting I watch is Netflix. I, I like Netflix because, you know, it's about 35 trades a year uh, based on the percent change. So you just calculate the previous day percent change. And as long as there's a positive percent change, you hold your your stock, and then when it switches to a negative percent change, you, you sell. And then you wait till you have two days of consecutive percent change before you buy. And uh, you have about 35 of those those trades that you can do a year, and that's a nice uh, that's a nice safe strategy. Because the idea is on the day that it sells, it's not you're going to sell early, so you're not going to lose catastrophically. Because that's one of the big risks to stock or gambling is that there's an unlimited liability. Anytime you don't think there's an unlimited liability on stock, just buy penny stock and you'll see how unlimited liability works. I mean, if you bought a million dollars in penny stock, there is a probability that that company will default, go out of bankrupt, uh, go into bankruptcy, and you will get no access to uh, the assets for the sale of that company. Just depends on what level of, of share that you have. So, like if you had a preferred share, you might, after the creditors take their money, you might be able to get a portion of the company's asset liquidation valuations but most for the most part you have uh, stock with 
first claim rights to assets. Um, for that reason, I don't really like stock. I really, I, in my age, I like uh, commodities because um, they have a value and uh, you can buy it and those commodities are have a utility and that's what gives them value. So as more of the world uses that utility, the demand for that commodity goes up. As interest rates go up, the value of the commodity uh, may go down uh, to it for a time, but depending on how the dollar is doing or the view of inflation, then the commodity may go up. So they say that uh, commodities are a defensive move against the inflation and their appreciative value uh, increases during deflation. So because it holds a uh, real value in comparison to another commodity. So let's say you have two commodities that you're, you're comparing and you found correlation. So you can use that in machine learning. You can look to see, uh, take your, you know, take a hundred or a thousand different uh, uh, commodities and then run that over maybe a five-year period of time and then uh, run it through uh, some stepwise operations and find out which columns, combinations correlate. And then you can follow one commodity as it relates to another. So a lot of people follow copper. Copper, not gold, is a good indicator of how the economy is doing. So if, if the economy is growing fast, people are using lots of copper to build, put in buildings, uh, plumbing. Some of the plumbing have copper. Uh, it's a mixture of copper and, and plastics, PVC. Um, and, you know, electrical lines have copper, motors have copper. Um, so as the level of industry increases, the use in manufacturing increase, then the consumption of copper goes up. So copper is sometimes a very good indicator of how healthy the economy is. Um, there are some computers that use gold, like mainframes used to use gold on their chips. There's better uh, in terms of electrical conductivity. And so there were people that would look, watch for mainframe salvaging and then, and then they extract out the gold off of that and sell the gold. Um, there's also silver. Silver is used in different industries. Um, and I was surprised that there you can do PCB programming on 3D printers. And they use a silver um, alloy to create the connectors. So you can put the, these PCB print boards on curved surfaces. And they showed one where they had a, it uh, printed out on a little model of a car and the PCB circuitry was printed right onto the car. So it's you know fascinating um, technology. And once uh, you know a lot of companies have their own 
PCB circuitry for controlling hardware. And once the world realizes the valuation of PCB and can lower the cost to the cost of 3D printing, then the proliferation of things is going to increase. There's going to be more things that hobbyists are uh, printing PCB boards for to control. And, uh, you know, you're not tying it to a handheld device through Bluetooth to control that uh, system. It's running the logic uh, right directly on the PCB board, controlling uh, a controller that's controlling motors or actuators or whatnot. So there's a lot of hardware that uh, could, uh, could be used. And, and so as the increase in hardware increases, the IoT information gathering is also going to be possible. Because eventually, um, you're going to need a way for the things to communicate. So uh, building circuitry or making available circuitry that allows things to communicate. And then you'd have to find carriers that uh, would allow third-party PCB networks to connect. And so, you know, there's a whole new blue ocean of opportunity and new companies to form around these ideas. Because IoT is going to be a huge industry as more data is going to be collected around us. And uh, it's already starting to be collected. You know, we have our, our uh, handheld devices and Large servers are collecting information from us. Consumerism. Over every time you do an e-commerce, those transactions are saved and in perpetual. Don't think that they're purged. They're never purged. Uh, they're kept there forever. And so you have a trace on the consumer of what they purchase, <coughs> what they uh, would uh, associatively like, so they can say, well, you know, other customers purchase these following items also they might offer them and there is a probability based on how many customers purchase those items that you will make that purchase also so there's a certain probability by offering <coughs> those associative <coughs> products or services that you also uh, accept and make those purchases so that's a an interesting world we live in is AI is going to play a heavier role in it and as information is gathered. I'm already learning PySpark. So PySpark, like Hive, is a uh, cluster technology. Your data is moved to, uh, to clusters and then you, uh, you move through the, the Spark uh, data context. So you create a data context and that then gives you access to a list of tables. So it's a lot like SQL Server. You have a context and then within that context uh, you have tables and schema objects and then you can do SQL-like queries against the data. And then you can move that into data frames or you can move data frames into uh, PySpark or just Spark uh, data clusters and then you can see your your data uh, visible there 
and then you can uh, access that data. So let's say that you're dealing with, uh, you know, millions of devices that are collecting all kinds of different data. So you would have lots of different data tables inside of your uh, your hive cluster. Well, again, you have the same challenges uh, as any data set. You have to discover the data. You have to find out what features are important. And, uh, and then you have to learn from the data and then try to uh, find observable data. So you, you form hypotheses, you test those hypotheses. Uh, you, you do visualizations, look at the distributions, uh, look at correlation, look at variance. Uh, look at, uh, you know, you can use Pearson for your correlation. And you can use pair plot if the data isn't too large. So you can take subsets. And then you can learn, you hook into deep learning. You know, deep learning is just amazing for the world we are living in because, you know, it's part of the Google Brain project. And uh, it allows you to build these massive pa parameter networks. And when I say massive, you know, we, we look, just for the credit card, I did, uh, I think it's 16 or 17 input nodes. And then I had a 24, 20, 10, and then one layer network. And it really did reveal quite a bit of information about the behavior of the group that I started thinking, well, I wonder if I could really say that 30-year-olds are higher risk than 70-year-olds. But then I looked at how many people were 70-year-old. I did a, a graph and uh, did the uh, bill amount and the limit of limit balance. And then I used uh, age as my uh, hue color. And I was able to see that, you know, there wasn't that many 70-year-olds who were carrying, you know, balance, high balances. So that, you know, just the fact that there's less of that population, well, the working age is, you know, 30 and 40, so they've got incomes, but they're also spending lots of money. They're, you know, either they're buying homes, cars, uh, furniture, and those, and those things are, are heavy loads and they, you know, they, they don't have experience in carrying the debt so they can get in over their head really easy. And it does indicate that by the default predictions that 30 and 40 year olds uh, tend to have de uh, more defaults than the other group uh, from the test sample that I used. Of course, you know, I'm using a small data sample. I'm not using the whole United States. I'm just using, you know, some data that I found on the internet and then analyzing it. So, not so concerned about whether or not my uh, correlations are correct or my observations are correct at this point because you know I have an unknown which is the data source but I still can analyze it and say here are the observed behaviors I've seen in that data source and so as you learn just like we learn you know from experience uh, interacting with people you can learn from the data also because the data reflects may reflect the whole uh, span of time and that's one of the amazing things about deep learning is I know we're going to need 
larger hard drives. We were talking about terabyte drives, but I think that the world of machine learning and large data sets uh, is going to make the need for those hard drives to be pentabyte very soon. Uh, because I, I find even with my terabyte hard drive, uh, I'm about 50% full. And, it's, and I'm like, how can I be 50% full? That's a huge amount of data to be putting on there. But uh, when you look at the number of Python libraries you're downloading and the data sets, some of the data sets are small right now. They're in the, you know, under the two meg mark. But then there's some that I've, I've downloaded. They're up in the 12 to 25 meg da uh, benchmark. And I've actually had to take a narrow scope of data from that. So not the whole population, but, you know, just pull like, say, like Idaho and Utah, you know, and ignore California because California's data set is too large. And so since I'm not doing this professionally, you know, I, I can ignore those larger data sets. But if you were doing it professionally, you would want to have as much data as possible. And then you would need big machines, with lots of CPU to crunch through it quickly so that you're not, you're able to get some results uh, fast. And uh, those are the, those are the types of uh, things that you need to be thinking about that, uh, um, help you understand your data. And the other thing too is collect your data uh, wherever possible. So start, uh, you know, build a couple IoT devices and start collecting data. Collect temperature, collect, collect uh, light, you know, to do start with easy things and then move to uh, more complex things like movement, you know, infrared movement detection, you know, measure how many rodents are moving across your floor at night, uh, put it in your garage and see how many mice are, are moving around. But uh, collect that, put it in visuals, and then make predictions. See if the population is increasing or decreasing. Maybe there are certain times a year that you see a surge in rodent behavior. You know, uh, Collect data on, on your own self. Uh, how many times you get up and exercise, how many miles you walk every day. And then, you know, make predictions and, and, uh, and uh, do statistics that way. So the world of, uh, of data is at your hand.